Well, greetings, uh, St. Michael's Chester Square. My name's Mark Thomas, and um, when Guy first invited uh, me to come and speak to you this Sunday, I was so excited. I was really looking forward to actually being with you. Um, but these unusual times force us to connect in unusual ways and even to meet for the first time in unusual ways, although I hope very much to meet you in person soon as well. But the strangeness doesn't end there. I've been invited to speak to you today on a very strange subject, the subject of fasting. Now, if I can just be uh, clear for a moment, um, the idea of having a sermon on not eating only one week after the greatest celebration in the Christian calendar, well, that was not my idea. That was entirely uh, Reverend Guy Axelson. Uh, so please do take it up with him if you feel that a sermon on feasting rather than fasting might have been more appropriate today. And certainly I'm very accomplished at feasting, um, so I'd have been very, very happy to do that as well. Um, but I trust that this time is going to prove worthwhile. And so why don't we pray now that it is? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God without limits. Thank you that your loving presence is with all of us right here, right now. Thank you that you are still speaking to your church and building your kingdom today. And we pray that you would help us now to understand the part that prayer and fasting have to play in your glorious purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what about fasting? Well, at the moment, we are all being forced to forego involuntarily many good things, aren't we? And I wonder what you're finding the hardest. Um, for me, it's simply not being able to be in the same room as my friends and my family. Um, I'm also a big hugger. And while times of social distancing are great for people who like to protect their personal space, um, for personal space invaders like me, and I know there's many of you out there as well, um, well, it's torment, isn't it? We long um, to be with our friends and family in the same room again. And uh, for these last uh, three weeks, my poor wife is the only person who's been able to meet my hugging needs. And I'm pretty sure she's exhausted of that already. But while the corona crisis forces us to forego good things involuntarily, fasting is a practice where we do that voluntarily, where we freely choose to abstain from good things in order to seek God and to seek more of God and to seek more from God. But if this um, sermon is going to be more than simply a theoretical exercise, I'm going to need to convince you of two things. Firstly, that fasting is a genuinely Christian practice. And then second, that there are good reasons to do it. Now, of course, today I can only scratch the surface. Um, so if you want to go further, my top recommendation is this book uh, by John Piper um, called A Hunger for God. Um, this was the book um, that really helped me to understand what the Bible as a whole um, says about fasting and especially what Christian fasting is um, distinctively. Um, so that's Hunger for God by John Piper. And it, uh, very generously, it's actually um, a free PDF on his Desiring God website at the moment as well. OK, so that first question. Is fasting Christian? Is fasting Christian? Well, that is a genuinely important question, because from what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, it sounds like the answer might be no. As we heard at that time, other devout Jews were fasting, but Jesus and his disciples were not. And when they asked him about this, he said in verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? In other words, the king, the Messiah that you've been waiting for, is here. The waiting is over. The bridegroom has come. It's party time. It's not time to fast. It's time to feast. And of course, in one sense, that is still gloriously true. The king is still here. 
for his first disciples, um, he was here in the flesh. But since the day of Pentecost, he's been here still by his spirit, living in your heart and in the hearts of all his followers by the Holy Spirit. The spirit who brings home to us personally the love and the presence and the power of God. The spirit who leads us in intimate friendship with God. The spirit who makes us cry, Abba, Father. The king is with us still by his spirit. But we also notice that Jesus coming 2000 years ago did not bring an end to fasting because he continues in verse 15. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them then they will fast. Now you could say, oh, but that's just surely the two day period between the cross and the resurrection when he was really taken away by death. But surely since the resurrection, fasting is now obsolete because he's back and he's back to stay. However, the more you think about it, the more you realize it can't just mean that two day period where the gospels actually don't tell us either way whether the disciples fasted or not. No, it seems to mean more than that. Now, for the full explanation on this, I want to point you to John Piper. Um, but for the short answer, simply observe this. The early church still practised fasting. The early church still practised fasting. Um, we see that twice in the book of Acts, including in that pivotal moment uh, where the Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul to begin that great new chapter in the spread of the gospel. And then also Paul mentions it twice about um, his own practice in 2 Corinthians. So fasting is a Christian practice, or at least the right kind of fasting is. As John Piper puts it, the principle for Christians is not no fasting, but new fasting. Not no fasting, but new fasting. Now this is the bit where I want to throw something out to you that will probably sound confusing um, at first, but I'd love you to chew it over in your own head and in your conversations and see if it starts to make sense. And here it is. In Jesus' parable, old wineskins can't cope with the new wine. But new wineskins can. So there's discontinuity, the old versus the new. But there's also continuity. They're both wineskins. The old wineskins aren't replaced by new bottles, but by new wineskins. So what Jesus seems to be talking about is a new, more joyful way of relating to God that includes a new kind of fasting. And here's the key difference. Old covenant fasting, part of the old wineskin in Jesus' parable, expressed a longing for something that had not yet come. Whereas new covenant fasting is about seeking more of what has already come. Old fasting, seeking what you don't have. New fasting, seeking more of what you do. And again, here's how John Piper puts it. We Christians have tasted the powers of the age to come. And our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying that we must have all, we, we must have all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God. And even if you take fasting out of it, I hope that what he's talking about there is both your experience and your heart cry. 
I hope that you know personally the joy and the life and the peace and the purpose and the meaning and the hope and the soul-quenching satisfaction of knowing Jesus. And you know that without Jesus, it would be like living in the grey and in the shadows. But with him, it's like living in glorious technicolour, where nothing can ever be the same again. And because you know that your God is a God of inexhaustible riches, you know that there's always more. And so the cry of your heart is to know him as closely and as intimately and as powerfully as it is possible to know him this side of eternity. So I hope that that is your experience and your heart cry. And if it's not, but you want it to be, well, all you have to do is ask him. Just come to God with a humble heart and ask him, Lord, give me that heart. Because this is what it means to be fully alive. To be hungry for all the fullness of God. To be captivated by Jesus. And this is the kind of person that God can really use for noble purposes. So there is such a thing as Christian fasting. But it's a new kind of fasting. And it expresses a hunger to know God even more. Okay, two more things and then we're going to get really practical. Um, So uh, next one. Fasting is one way to increase the intensity of your prayers. Fasting is one way to increase the intensity of your prayers. Now, it's definitely true that the New Testament says far more about praying than it does about fasting. It's actually about 10 times as much. And while it says often pray continually, it never says fast continually. You'd be dead, of course, if you did. But no, prayer is much more important than fasting. However, fasting can be an aid to prayer. It's one way to pray with greater intensity. Partly because it simply gives you more time to pray. Um, Instead of needing to have lunch, you can spend that lunch hour in prayer and worship. But I would also say it can bring an earnestness to your prayers. Because it's a way of saying physically, Lord, this is how much I want you. This is how much I want your glory. Even more than the wonderful gift of food. And I I might encourage you actually to, to think of the word fasting really as shorthand for praying with the intensity of fasting. Um, Certainly I found that a helpful way to understand the connection. And then one more thing. Fasting has an inward and an outward dimension. Fasting has an inward and an outward dimension. Or to put it another way, and it's the same with prayer, fasting is about both seeking God's glory in my life and about seeking God's glory in the world. Inwardly, prayer brings me closer to God, and sometimes fasting helps with that. For example, by exposing the desires and the appetites that control me. Remember, fasting can be abstaining from any good thing, not just food. So it can bring my ungodly attitudes or attachments into the light. It can help me realise and repent of things that grieve the Holy Spirit within me. That's inward. And then outwardly, well, as you know, the prayer of faith advances God's kingdom. Prayer advances God's kingdom. That's his promise. And again, sometimes fasting can help in that. Uh, One of the most dramatic stories of the 20th century was the spread of the gospel in South Korea. Uh, Did you know that over the course of 100 years, no less than 30,000 new churches were born? 30,000. That's an average of 300 new churches every year for 100 years. So that by the end of the 20th century, evangelical Christians alone formed 30% of the population. And at the heart of it all was a church with a distinctive and radical commitment 
to both prayer and fasting. It's an amazing story of God's power and well worth exploring further. Okay, now let's get practical. How do we fast? How do we do it? Well, the main thing to say here is that the Bible gives very little guidance, actually. Um, so I'm just uh, quickly going to share a few things that I personally found helpful. Um, number one, be, be clear on your goal. Be clear on your goal. Know what or who it is that you're praying for and keep that as your clear focus. Number two, be resourced. Be resourced. Use scriptures and worship music and other aids to prayer to fuel and direct what can otherwise become a kind of well-intentioned but directionless activity. And you might want to have those resources ready um, before you begin. Uh, number three, be sensible. Be sensible. Get medical advice, especially if you take prescription medication or have some kind of medical condition. Um, some people should never fast without professional supervision. And also I'd say if you want to try a longer fast, well get advice on how to break that fast in the best way, because it usually needs to be a staggered process. And then number four, develop your stamina. Develop your stamina. Please, please, please don't try and start with a 40-day fast. Start small, fasting one meal or maybe one type of food. Um, for me, I began my personal patterns of fasting by fasting food only until five o'clock on days where my work was less intense. And that's how I developed that uh, early stamina and uh, understanding just how to, how to do it in a basic way. Um, last year, I tried my first longer fast and it was 21 days, water only, um, broken uh, down into chunks of three, four, five days. So it wasn't 21 days straight, it was in chunks. Uh, and also uh, within that, I included one day of praying through the night. I thought I'd have a go at that as well. Um, and I had a very clear goal of seeking God's direction through that time. And it, physically, it was it was interesting. Um, so it, it definitely helped that I'd been given the advice to come off caffeine a week before to do a caffeine detox beforehand. That definitely made it more straightforward. Um, I noticed that days two and three were the hardest. Those were the days when I felt most lethargic. Um, I also noticed I had to brush my teeth more um, because my breath got worse. Um, interestingly, also my hands got colder. So usually it's my wife who is the one with cold hands, but that reversed during those fasting stretches. And then uh, one other thing, um, I learned from experience that it was more comfortable to break a multiple day fast with hot soup rather than solids. And I will leave you to work out why. But build up your stamina. And I encourage you to do that with praying as well. So I believe that if every Christian in this nation could learn in a way that suits their personality and their rhythms and their diary, how to pray continually by themselves as well as with other people for one hour, only one hour, then we'd really begin to see a nation changed because the church would start to really build up its praying and fasting stamina. And as with uh, physical fitness, you find that these things become a milestone. Over time, with God's help, I found myself able to pray for longer and longer, first for one hour, um, then for two, then for three, to the point that sometimes I can now pray for three hours and feel like I've run out of, t uh, feel like I've run out of time. Um, scripture is always the fuel for me and um, praying God's vision, uh, not my vision, but his into reality, which is, of course is always more purposeful and more inspiring. And personally, I especially love those big visionary passages near the end of Isaiah. So there are my practical tips and there's certainly plenty more out there if you want to go and look for them. But as I close now, I just want to say this. It's all about the good news. It's all about the good news. 
Jesus is good news for everyone, everywhere. Hope is alive. The bridegroom has come. The feast has begun. And the more we know him, the more we long to know him more. And the more we hunger for him and his glory in this world. And the more we pray and fast earnestly that the gospel may be preached to all nations. That his work on earth may be completed. And, and so we hasten the day when he returns in his father's glory. And so we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Come quickly. May your work on earth be finished, that your glorious kingdom may be fully consummated. And as we wait, may we proclaim you and love you and glorify you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. For your glory. Amen. Amen.